You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LOS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be speaking again with Dr. Martha Arigiano, Associate Professor of Hematology and Oncology and Program Director of the Hematology and Medical Oncology Fellowship Program at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Arigiano. Thank you so much for having me. On a previous episode with you, we spoke about diagnosis, symptoms, possible risk factors for AML. So for those listening, we encourage you to listen to that episode as well for more about that information and a more understanding of the basis of AML. But on this episode, we will be jumping into the topic of treatment. Now, before we jump into treatment, what is AML for the person listening that didn't get a chance to listen to that first episode with you? Yes, certainly. So AML is a blood cancer. It starts in the bone marrow the bone marrow stem cells, which are normally invisible to the eye, even under the microscope, can acquire mutations in their DNA. And if our body is not able to get rid of those mutated or damaged cells, then these cells can continue to grow out of control. And normally, we shouldn't be able to see stem cells, even under the microscope in the bone marrow, or those in the blood. And in leukemia and AML, these cells grow so quickly that they fill the bone marrow space and then they start to spill into the blood. And the definition of AML is that those leukemia cells, which we call leukemia blasts, are 20% or more of all the cells in the bone marrow or the blood. And so at the same time that those leukemia blasts are overcrowding the marrow, they also cause what looks like a bone marrow failure type of syndrome where the marrow is not working well and it's not making enough of those normal blood cells that are needed for us to be able to fight infection and to be able to not bleed and to have the adequate energy with a adequate level of hemoglobin. It's basically a blood cancer that starts in the bone marrow. When it comes to AML, we know that despite advances in treating other blood cancers, the standard of care for AML patients hasn't changed in almost 40 years. What's the cause for that or reason for that? It is a rare disease, and even though there has been, yes, a lot of research done, I think in the past few years there has been a tremendous increase in effort in investigating the the causes of AML and the makeup of all these genetic mutations that happen in those uh, leukemia cells that make it so difficult to treat. And so even though the treatment for many years, uh, the standard had been the same, 
there are actually some newer, more exciting options today, and a lot of research that's still ongoing. Right, and like you said, the effort is there. LS has been on the forefront of the battle against AML, so I think it's important to understand that because of how complex it is, that's what's preventing us from figuring it out. I guess you could say. Correct. Getting down to yeah, yeah, getting down to more and more of a resolution for how we can treat these patients and cure them. Yeah, exactly. And an AML cell can have so many mutations that it's hard to figure out which mutation is the driver of the disease so that if we target that mutation, do we get rid of the disease? And then there's some data that shows that the different blasts in the same patient with the same AML, different blasts can have different mutations. So you may be targeting one thing that you think is the driver, but then months or years later, new mutations may pop up and cause that leukemia to relapse or to progress. So as Alicia mentioned, there's a lot of new things coming up in AML. There wasn't a lot of things before, but now, interestingly enough, there's new approvals for AML therapy. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. Historically, it was one size fits all, right? Induction chemo for everybody, whether they were likely to benefit or not. And the only other option was palliative care or blood transfusions, antibiotics, and hospice. And so here in the past two years, we've had eight approvals, eight new drugs that have been approved for AML. And that's, that's just in the, you know, no, no drugs had been approved for many, many years. And so these drugs are, I think the discovery was sparked by the discovery of all these gene mutations. And we're going to see more, more approvals of these drugs as we discover more genetic pathways that are affected and also use that information. For a long time, the molecular or gene mutation information that we could gather was only used to predict prognosis. And now that's actually translated into actual targeted treatments. So it's a very exciting time in the treatment of AML. There are also immunotherapies, treatments that aim to train the immune system to target the leukemia cells within the patient's body. That's very encouraging for the the, uh, AML patient who, like I said, 40 years of no advancement and to hear there would be some progress. I mean, this is something that people are living with and kind of always having the air to the cement about what's happening. So that's very encouraging to hear. Yeah. Yeah, there's a patient that I was seeing today who was considering the various treatments, and I was just telling them, you know, there's a brand new treatment that I think will likely become the standard of care for those patients who are not likely to benefit from induction treatment. And so there's a drug called Venetoclax, which is a pill. It's already in use. It has been used for some time for chronic lymphocytic leukemia and multiple myeloma, but now it's been recently approved for patients that are older that are newly diagnosed with AML, and their remissions are in the range of 70% in combination with another group of drugs that are being used. They're called hypomethylating agents, and so that's really been a breakthrough. There are other medications. There are two drugs that inhibit a 
mutation called FLT3 or FLT3. One of them is called mitostorin, which was approved to be used in combination with induction chemotherapy in those patients that have AML with a FLT3 type of mutation. And then more recently, there's another drug called uh, gilteritinib, which is another FLT3 inhibitor also approved. That one's approved for relapsed or refractory AML. In terms of other genes, there are two genes. One is called IDH1. The other one is called IDH2. These genes, I was talking with one of my patients about this, and I was saying, remember the Krebs cycle in biology class? And she said, oh, my gosh, yes. So so these genes are involved in the Krebs cycle, and when they're mutated, they tend to be drivers of AML. So about 10 to 12% of patients have mutations in either IDH1 or IDH2. And so now we have an IDH1 inhibitor that's FDA-approved and an IDH2 inhibitor as well. And then there's an antibody treatment that was previously FDA-approved, and then there were some safety concerns with it, and it went off the market for some years, and it was just brought back. It's called gemtuzumab ozogamycin. It's an antibody that targets something called CD33, which is a marker on most AML cells, pretty much all of them. And so, you know, there's never been so many new drugs. Absolutely. And I think what's exciting, too, what you were saying, that a lot of this is coming about because we are finding new mutations, and we're testing for these. We're realizing that we could do something more in the personalized medicine, meaning that not everybody's getting 7 plus 3. Exactly. So it's, you know, going to be tailored to the type of AML that you have, so you have, I think, a better chance of the therapy working if you know that the therapy has worked for your type of mutation. I know here at LLS, we're doing the BDAML trial, and really, that's the core of what we're trying to do, which is really that individualized medicine where a person is given something that hopefully will treat their disease, not just AML in general. Exactly. Yeah, so I was going to talk about that, the BEAT, B-E-A-T, not B-E-E-T, BEAT AML. Not the vegetable. I like BEAT. The verb. Exactly. So BEAT AML, (laughs) it's a very large study. We're one of the uh, sites for BEAT AML at Emory, and patients consent and provide a bone marrow aspirate, which is analyzed for microscopic analysis, chromosomes, and the genetic mutational analysis. Then we get that information back, and based on the mutations that the the leukemia cells have, the patient is allocated to a specific treatment. And there are many sub-studies. There's an IDH1 inhibitor sub-study, an IDH2 inhibitor sub-study. There is a P53 sub-study. P53 is a gene that when it's mutated, it predicts a very poor prognosis. And there is a drug that we think targets uh, P53, and it's we've seen a few remissions uh, using that drug, so it's very promising. 
And then for those patients, there are patients who don't have any targets or they have genes for which there isn't a drug, a targeted drug. So then those patients go onto a standard type of arm. So there is no one thing that patients will ask me is, will I be getting a placebo? And I tell them there is no placebo for this. Everybody will get treatment. Everybody will get at least what is considered standard or a hypomethylating agent plus a targeted treatment. So that's a very exciting trial. And what's awesome about this trial is that, you know, the collaboration continues to expand and to, to include multiple academic institutions. So a lot of people are able to have access to this if they're, you know, in those areas, of course. But I think it's something great for AML patients like you were mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. For many patients with AML, a clinical trial is the best option. Right. And for those listening who would like more information about this trial, you can visit www.lls.org forward slash beat AML, B-E-A-T AML. I think what's also important and I think true, please doctor, tell me that some of these newer medications, don't they have less side effects for patients? Exactly. The beat AML trial is for patients older than 60 because these are the patients that tend to have a lot of other medical problems that uh, would put them at risk for side effects from the strong induction type of treatment, although there is an induction arm for BAML, by the way. And so these drugs are by design supposed to be better tolerated for these older patients. I've said it, but I haven't said what they are, the hypomethylating agents. There are two They're called azacitidine and decitabine. They're FDA-approved in this country for MDS, but they're pretty broadly used uh, for patients that are older or frail or that have a lot of other medical problems and are not candidates for induction chemotherapy, and so they're used in AML. The initial clinical trials that tested these drugs for MDS actually had AML by the former definition of AML, which was 30% blasts. And so now the new definition is 20% blast or more. And so those patients essentially, and there was a response rate, you know, a rate of complete remission in these patients who back then had MDS, but today had AML. And so these newer agents are, tend to be added to the backbone of a hypomethylating agent, either azacitidine or decitabine. And they're a lot less toxic. Patients, I had a, a young 80-year-old who asked me, will I lose my hair? And he's like, not that I really care, but I'm just curious, will I lose my hair? <laughs> and I told him, so patients are not losing their hair after getting these hypomethylating wow. agents. Yeah, so they are less toxic. That's very important. I think one of the other things that I think is is a breakthrough to know is that we always thought of AML as something that had to be treated right away. You're diagnosed and you have to be treated right away. Here we're finding that we can successfully hold off to get the actual test results to see if a patient has any of these markers that we can target before starting treatment so we can actually specialize that treatment for that person. I think that's a new concept. I know it's a new concept for me for AML. 
Yeah, that yeah, and that's a very good point. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of patients that I see that are referred had already had one cycle of something, whether it's a hypomethylating therapy or something else. And I think if the patient is not in an emergency situation where the white count is through the roof and you know, you really don't need to do something right that second. There is time to get that diagnostic information to make sure that we make the right decision and also to enroll the patients in a clinical trial. Some of the patients that I've seen with recently diagnosed AML come in after they've had one cycle of either decitabine or azacitidine, and so now they don't qualify to go on the clinical trial. And we know that those drugs will not put someone into remission after just one cycle also. And sometimes a stem cell transplant is recommended for an AML patient, the two types being allogeneic and autologous stem cell transplant. When is it determined which one will be used for the patient or for a patient? So for the majority of patients who we think are candidates for a stem cell transplant, they will be a candidate or we will recommend an allogeneic or a donor transplant. There is only one type of AML where autologous or a transplant from the patient's own cells uh, can work, and that is in patients with acute promyositic leukemia, which is a subset of AML, type of AML that's treated differently. Uh, In those patients, an autologous transplant after the disease recurs and they're back in remission could help. But for the vast majority of AML patients and for all of MDS patients who in whom we will recommend a transplant is going to be an allogeneic transplant. Oh, okay. Autologous transplants, they're mostly used in the space of multiple myeloma and lymphomas, certain lymphomas. And you'd mentioned a new treatment that was just also newly approved for patients, I believe, that started with myelodysplastic syndrome and then were diagnosed with uh, subsequent AML? Yes, so that is called Vixios, and that it's a liposomal combination. It's like 7 plus 3 that's put into a liposome in a specific ratio, and in that lipid micelle or that liquid globule, the two drugs maintain that ratio. And there was a clinical trial that compared Vixios with 7 plus 3 induction, in these patients, and it was better. It met its endpoint, so it became FDA-approved. And so that is uh, what we would use now in somebody that has AML after MDS or AML with MDS-related changes. And that's great because those patients were higher-risk patients, Right, right, yeah. And those patients are still candidates for stem cell transplantation. One question that patients will ask me is, if I'm a candidate for transplant, when can I get it and why can't I get it up front? (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, (laughs) and so (laughs) stem cell transplantation has the biggest success with patients that are in remission. So we know that when someone is in remission, So remission means that we cleaned out the bone marrow of all the bad cells, and now the bone marrow is functioning and making good cells. But even patients who are in remission still have microscopic disease that's not we're not able to detect um, by the best test that we have, and that's why the leukemia comes back. And so immunotherapy and allogeneic transplantation is one of the 
longest uh, living immunotherapies, it works best when there's very little disease there. And so if someone comes in with a white count of 100,000 with AML, we're not going to do a transplant right off the bat because it isn't going to work. And so you get all the toxicity and none of the benefit. So we want to get the patient in the best condition, you know, in remission and with as few side effects from the chemotherapy as possible. That's the other thing, that patients have to be in very good health before going through a donor transplant. I was reading a story of a patient who was diagnosed with AML, and she it had progressed so rapidly and they had caught it so late that the doctors had basically told her family to come in and say their goodbyes. But what ended up happening was she decided to go on a clinical trial, and she just said, you know what, since the odds are looking so grim anyway, I might as well. And it ended up working for her. And she started to feel better to the point where the doctors introduced the possibility of a stem cell transplant. And what was interesting is she had many siblings, and the siblings matched each other, but they didn't match her. Oh, wow. So Yeah. Yeah. So she basically shed light on the fact that, you know, being of a mixed ethnic background, she spoke about how for, you know, there's many Americans of European descent that find a match, but only about 19% of African Americans do, according to a recent New England Journal of Medicine study. So she stressed the importance of what it means to be a donor and be that need for another person because of how low the numbers are for those of mixed ethnic or racial background that are underrepresented in the registry. Yeah, exactly. that. So that's an amazing story, and I've seen that in my clinic as well. You know, someone that came for a second opinion and decided to try a treatment on them, and they ended up doing well. And yeah, that, so there's a critical need for bone marrow or stem cell donors, and you know, minority races, black, Hispanic, American Indian, and mixed uh, races, because the way that the HLA typing works, the less mixed you are, the more likely it is that you'll have a donor. And so patients will often say, you know, should I start a bone marrow drive just for me, or should my cousins come and get tested just for me? And I generally tell them to go ahead and, you know, have that bone marrow drive and have everybody get tested, but to get in the registry so that even if they can't help you, they can help someone else. I'm in the registry, but I've never been called. Me neither. I'll donate if I get called. <laughs> right, right. Not only are the mixed ethnic and racial background underrepresented in the registry, but they also have greater diversity in their tissue types as well, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I say if I ever needed a donor, there wouldn't be one because I'm just so mixed. (laughs) (laughs) My father was from Ecuador. My mother's from Colombia. My grandfather was from Vietnam. I mean, good grief. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? What was interesting is the physicians of this patient that I was speaking about they told her to pursue another route, and she ended up doing the umbilical cord blood. Oh, okay. Umbilical cord blood. Yeah. Yeah, and then she, and that is what ended up, you know, saving her life. And now she is a healthy, long-term transplant survivor and mother of two. Wow. There are a lot of advances in the stem cell transplantation and cellular therapy field as well. There are transplants that are half matches when we can't find. Uh, so the best donor, right, would be a sibling that has identical HLA typing. 
Then the next best would be an unrelated donor that's identical. But when we can't find the best case scenario, then we have half matches or haploidentical transplants where children or parents are matched together. And then cord blood transplant is something that's relatively new, but also an option for these patients who would not otherwise have a donor. And for those listening who would like information about stem cell transplant or to speak with one of our information specialists, you can give them a call at 1-800-955-4572, anytime Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern time. (laughs) Eastern time. That's important. That's important. (laughs) I just wanted to ask you about CAR T-cell therapy for AML. So everybody's hearing about CAR T-cell therapy. Right now, it's approved for two indications within the blood cancer space. And a lot of people are really asking, is CAR T-cell therapy something that is going to be a future treatment for AML? So it is, yeah, like you said, it's definitely a, it's here now for ALL and and certain types of lymphomas, but it is investigational for AML. So it is possible that it will be a treatment option someday. It's great, which is uh, just another treatment option. Can you tell people what it is? Just because we do have some people that don't know what CAR-T means at this point. So CAR-T cells, chimeric antigen receptor T cells, they are engineered T cells where we collect the cancer cells, the leukemia cells from the patient, and then their own T cells are engineered to recognize the cancer cells, and then we infuse them back into the patient and their job is to kill the leukemia that they were trained you know, to recognize. And so one of my patients that treated with CAR T cells for ALL said, how are my little soldiers doing? Because when I described it to her, I said that they're like little soldiers that were trained to recognize your leukemic blasts that we can't see, and they're going to kill them. Uh, Some people call them smart bombs. I don't like to use the (laughs) violent words to describe them, but (laughs) I guess that's the best way that I can describe them. (laughs) We were talking with a doctor who said that he was talking to his patient, and he was saying how interesting it is how patients kind of rationalize their disease. And one of the patients said, I consider it like a Rottweiler to Chihuahua. And the doctor doctor was like, how how did you draw that that conclusion? So it never makes sense. It never makes sense to the patient. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So my patient who had CAR T-cells for ALL, we try not to give steroids to those patients during that treatment because the steroids can kill the T-cells. That's why steroids are part of treatment for certain types of leukemia. And so she got pretty sick, and I ended up giving her steroids. And she said, and this was, um, you know, days later, I thought that she had forgotten that whole little soldier conversation. But she said, how are my little soldiers? Did you kill them all? Oh. (laughs) It's like, no, I think they're going to be okay. (laughs) It's so great to have that type of relationship with your doctor. And because you're already going through something that's so life-changing and so traumatizing. So when you're able to have that connection with somebody who is there to, I mean, save your life, it's one where you, you want to be able to have that type of relationship and feel comfortable knowing that the person that's alongside you, you know, on this journey is one that you can trust. Yeah, absolutely. 
and understand because mm-hmm. a lot of times you know you go in I know I go in sometimes a doctor will say something and I didn't understand but I, I don't <laughs> want to say I'm sorry <laughs> I didn't understand that yeah you know can you say it a little bit different yeah but just to make it understandable I think is really a big deal I think that just that conversation with your doctor we have so many people calling us calling our information resource center and asking us questions that, you know, we do kind of say, well, what did your doctor say about your personal situation? And they say, well, I didn't really ask my doctor. I had 15 minutes with my doctor, and they're telling me about my blood counts, and they're telling me it's really good. So really, you know, that's not a place to talk about any quality of life issues or, you know, how this is working for me in this way. And we really encourage people to let them know that they can actually ask their doctor, especially to make it understandable. And I think that's a great way of putting it because CAR-T, when you actually look through the whole process, can be a little bit confusing. But how cool is it to, you know, understand a process that lets, you know, your own immune system is actually killing something that's bad that it didn't recognize before that's bad, now it does. I think it's you know, a really cool concept and to actually understand it that way. That's great. There are many patients that, you know, I feel like, oh, you came for a second opinion and I wasn't able to help you in any way because I don't have, you know, a better treatment to offer. And oftentimes they'll say, you actually did help because you gave me more information than I've gotten in weeks or months. And one patient, so I draw a lot of pictures. I draw a little picture of the bone and the cells and explain, you know, how the bone marrow works and how the blood works. And so, and I do it all the, I tell the fellows, if you're systematic and always do it the same way, you won't forget, you know, plus you get more efficient at doing it in a shorter (laughs) amount of time. Um, But I was going through my spiel with one of my patients and she said, you're a school teacher, aren't you? So, <laughs> turns out I used to be a preschool teacher in a oh. previous life. So. <laughs> but I just tell her, I just, I know what it's like when you go to the doctor and they're using so many technical words mm-hmm. and you don't want to feel like you're stupid by asking something or interrupting. So I tell them, feel free, ask me anything, you know, cut me off if you need to, if you don't understand. And it's so beautiful to know that the doctor that you're seeing doesn't mind spending more time on something. I mean, for me personally, when I go to the doctor and I'm rushed along, I feel like it was a complete waste of time and I get upset and I'm like, I don't think he heard me. And when I go to a doctor who will explain things multiple times or like you said, draw a picture or, you know, just take the time, that makes all the difference for somebody who's already going through such a rough time. Yeah, yeah, it's a very stressful time. One thing that's important while you're saying that is to bring someone else to the consultation because the two ears aren't going to hear everything, Mm -hmm. especially if it's the first time that you're going for a new patient visit or a consultation where you're going to get a lot of information. I think it's good to have another set of ears. Absolutely. Most people say that after they hear the word cancer, everything after that is... It's a blur. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And that's really what Lizette and I on this podcast, that's really what we try to, you know, create for people is when we talk to ATPs, we want them to 
know that it should be conversational, that they shouldn't approach a doctor's office or a doctor with fear, but to really feel empowered when it comes to their health and their diagnosis and the information that's out there, you know, having access to them is everything. So we really want to be that source of information for people so that they know. They know that we're here, and they also know that they also have the power to approach their diagnosis boldly, as scary as it may be. Yeah, yeah, this is, it's wonderful that you do this, yeah. Dr. Arjano, is there anything that you think we didn't cover that we should cover regarding treatment? I think that's it. I think that's pretty much it. The younger patients do ask about fertility issues, but if that's a concern, children down the line, they should bring it up, and there might be options. Absolutely. And for those listening (laughs) who would like information about AML, BAML, about fertility, we encourage you to visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets to download or order any of our free publications. Thank you so much for speaking with us about the treatment of AML. It's been so great chatting with you, Dr. Arijano. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.